LaGrace family. It's good to be virtually with you uh, this morning. And um, today is the Sunday, as we've, as we've heard, as we've been celebrating, today is the Sunday in which the church remembers Jesus' final entry into the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, just a week before his death. And as we remember this, as we celebrate that Sunday, we're going to be continuing our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew uh, chapter 13 this morning. And thus far in our story, we've seen this day, this Palm Sunday, we've seen it drawing closer and closer. And at this point in in the story of Matthew, we are now just eight weeks away from the final event, or eight chapters away from the, the final events of Jesus' life, from the first Palm Sunday. And uh, we saw last over the last couple of weeks in chapters 11 and 12, mixed responses and then rising opposition from many against the authority of the kingdom that's been expanding ever since Jesus preached that Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. And And more and more, as opposition rises, Matthew and Jesus are bringing that final week of Jesus' life closer and closer into view. It's as as if the the camera were, were tightening in, were zooming in tighter and tighter on the most defining week in all of history. And now we come to Matthew 13. It's the the third of five major teaching sections in Matthew. And even here we see signs of the plot thickening, of the, the conflict of the narrative intensifying, and we see glimpses into the climactic finish that will end the book of Matthew. But just as Jesus' enemies are ramping up their intensity, so Jesus, here as we will see, is ramping up his ministry. And he becomes increasingly concerned that his disciples truly understand the real nature of his upside-down kingdom. But he doesn't just want them to understand it right in their brains. He, he wants it to grip them. He wants it to wrap them up so that they understand with all of who we are. Right? Have you ever known something to be true? Maybe you've gone your whole life knowing this thing to be true. Um, but then something happens in your life that causes you to really know that it is true. Just a silly example of this, my, uh, our, my son Micah, 11 months old, when he was first learning how to walk, uh, he first taken his. Uh, he still is first learning how to walk. But he was taking when he was taking his first steps. He knew intellectually. He knew in his head that if he got too close to the, the edge of the mat that's in his grandparents' living room, this mat, this wrestling mat that's two or three inches tall, if he got too close to that and he went over the edge of that, he was going to trip and fall and hurt himself. Like he, he knew that up here, and you knew that he knew it up here because. <laughs> He, every time he got close to the edge of the mat, he would kind of tense up and flex and flinch in it and, uh, and, and get ready to, 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 to brace this, the pain of the fall. So he knew it up here, uh, but then one day it finally sunk down. Something happened and he finally realized, when I get close to the edge of this mat, I got to be very careful, otherwise I'm going to get hurt or, or I've gotta, I got to just avoid the edge of the mat altogether. So it went from being up here to really seeping in. He really got it. Another, another example of this is when I was first learning how to drive on icy, on, on icy roads. I, I knew up here that every time you come to a stop, you're supposed to pump your brakes, right? Not mash down the brake pedal. But, but it took me sliding through, halfway through an icy intersection, 
for it to really go from up here to, to sinking down right up here, right? Because what happens when, when we know something up here and it doesn't sink down? This, this kind of happens. Now, this is not actually what happened to me, but it's a good example of, of, of knowing something up here but not knowing it in here, right? Right, exactly, like father, like son. So, um, so, um, so um, uh, this, this is the kind of understanding of the kingdom that Jesus wants for those who follow him. Right? He doesn't just want to get it. Uh, he doesn't just want us to get it. He wants us to get it, right? And so we're going to be looking at the, at the, at the first 23 verses of Matthew 13. Uh, and, and then we'll also maybe look at a couple shorter par- par- parables found at the end of, of, of the chapter. And then next week, Justin's going to be back. We're going to focus on the resurrection and Easter. And then in two weeks, Justin is going to take us through kind of the rest of, the, of, the Matthew, of, of Matthew 13 that we're, that we're not going to get into today. So let me pray uh, that we would have ears to hear, right? That we would listen. Uh, and, then, um, and then we'll get started. I'll, I'll start reading the text for us. So let me pray for us. Father, would you shape us? Would you change us by your word? That's what we desperately, desperately need. Would you cause our hearts to be uh, soft toward your word, that we might truly be able to understand your word. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Cool. So let me read the first nine verses of chapter 13. It says, On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down, while the whole crowd stood on the shore. And he told them many things in parables, saying, Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground and produced fruit, some 100, some 60, and some 30 times what was sown. Let anyone who has ears, or he who hears, has ears to hear, listen. I'm I'm learning this with you. Yeah, okay. So, here the stage is set for us, right? And we're told that this happens right after Jesus has received a lot of mixed responses and rising opposition, right? We saw last week, Justin uh, told us about how the, the Pharisees were beginning to conspire how, to, how they might destroy him. And then they even accused him of being possessed by a demon. And it's right after that, on the same day, we see in verse 1, on that day, Jesus goes out of the, the house. He leaves his house and he goes to the Sea of Galilee, which is just kind of on outside of town in the town where he was living, Capernaum. Um, and all these people who have been following him came out to listen to him. So, so what does he do? Well, he's at the shore of the lake. He gets into a boat, rows out a little ways, and begins to teach in a cove that kind of makes a naturally occurring amphitheater, right? Like, like this one behind me. Uh, you can see how it was speaking even from on the water with all the waves and the wind sloshing against the boat, it, his voice would really carry in this amphitheater. So Jesus is standing on this boat. He's teaching these crowds. As we look at what he says, there's three important questions that I think will help frame our understanding of this, of this passage, of our conversation about the passage. So, and the first question is, who is the audience? Who is Jesus addressing here with this parable? Well, as we saw just last week, there are those who... There are those on the shoreline at the lake who 
hate Jesus. They reject him and have always rejected him. These are the people in power, the religious leaders of the day, but it's also vast numbers of people in whole towns, right? Like we saw in the middle of chapter 11, uh, that, that, that Jesus mourns over and denounces uh, who reject him wholesale. So this is by far the largest group of people in the Gospel of Matthew, and they're what I call the strongly opposed, the strongly opposed to Jesus. But then secondly, there are those following him now, but who will soon face persecution and immediately stop following him. They are enamored by Jesus' miracles and his displays of power. That we, that's what we saw in chapters 8 and 9, and then also last week in chapter 12. And they think Jesus is a guy that they can really get behind, and they want the blessings of his kingdom. But as soon as they realize that he's going to die first before consummating his kingdom, and that they too must suffer with him, Jesus knows that they will abandon him. So they want the kingdom, but they don't really want the king, right? They are those who are mistakenly passionate. And then there's a third group of people. There are those who are impressed with Jesus, but they're getting worn down by the cost of following him, right? We saw two members of this group all the way back in chapter 8, right? Do you remember the, the guy who came to Jesus, who was eager to follow Jesus, but then Jesus told him that, Even animals have dens, but I have no place to lay my head. And then right after that comes up, it comes the guy who Jesus perceived to be worried about his earthly estate with the death, with the impending death of his father. And Jesus told him, "Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead." So this group of people are the impressed but distracted. Impressed but distracted. And then there's one more group in addition to the crowds. That's the disciples and those that are closely following Jesus. And these men have been called by Jesus and and have also been sent out with his power and authority. That's what we saw in chapter 10. And they've also tasted a little bit of the cost of following him, like Jesus said they were. So these are the called and commissioned. There's a variety of responses to Jesus, right? Those who strongly oppose him, those who like the idea of Jesus, but but don't really want Jesus himself. There are those who initially follow Jesus, but then have become distracted by their own concerns. And then there are called and commissioned. That's the audience that Jesus has in front of groups, four groups of people, four types of responses. And then what does Jesus do with this story? He talks about a farmer who plants seeds into four different types of of soil. Right? Do you think there's a connection here between this story and then the people that are sitting on the shoreline in front of him? I think so. All right? This parable is about himself and about how those, um, those hearing him are responding to his teaching. In many ways, this is a parable about parables, right? And that's kind of mind-blowing, right? A parable within a parable. It's like, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, hey, you stole my words. How did you, you read my notes? <laughs> it's, like a, it's like he's just got done watching Inception or something. But, but, uh, but uh, yeah, so I, I still had to finish the joke. So. Um, so that's the audience, right? But then the disciples come to him. They ask him our second question that's going to help guide our conversation, right? The disciples come to him, and I'm not sure, we're, we're not sure, are they in the same boat as Jesus, or are they, um, are they, do they row up in another boat and shout across or something? But they take Jesus aside and they're like, Jesus, 
what are you doing, bro? You're, you're blowing this for us. Is this really the time to be speaking in riddles and telling people made-up stories about farmers? Look at all these people here. Now is your time to, to really set the hook on your, your sales pitch and, and cast a vision for, for how great the kingdom of heaven that you're ushering in will be. Right? They want Braveheart. What they're getting instead is that bridge keeper from Monty Python and the Holy Grail who says, what is your name? What is the airspeed velocity of of an unladen swallow, right? They're they're getting this Riddler guy, okay? But Jesus here, he's not a salesman. He's not an inspirational speaker, and he's not even trying apparently to win a following. He could care less about it. Instead, look at what he says. Let's read verses 11 through 17. He answered these disciples. Why do, why do you use a parable? He says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, the other three groups of people, it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have clothed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So the disciples come to him, and they ask our second question, why does he use a parable? Why does Jesus use a parable? And then let's break down Jesus' response here, because I think there's quite a bit of depth to what Jesus says, and even, even some mystery. But it, firstly, he says that I speak in parables as an act of free grace to those who are truly able to understand my message. That's what we see in verses, verse 11. So his disciples, they had been granted, they had been freely given knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom. Those are the words that Jesus used. Now, what does that mean? Well, Jesus had called them, he'd chosen them based solely on his free grace, right? Not on the basis of how smart they were or how virtuous or how powerful they are. And he'd called them to join him in bringing about the kingdom on earth. But he was bringing about this kingdom in a way that was secretive, in a way that was mysterious, in a way that was unexpected, but is now being disclosed. It wasn't triumphalistic and glorious. It was upside down and lowly. Now, my friends, this should push us toward incredible humility, right? None of us has received the gospel of the kingdom because we were smart enough to realize its truth. None of us have realized, have received the gospel of the kingdom because we were clever or particularly influential or smart, right? We received the gospel of the message of Christ as a completely unmerited gift, right? Like a school kid being given after a week of spring break, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not turning out to be that great of a gift. But, um, but at the same time, not only should it inspire humility, it should also inspire great courage, right? We have been 
we can have confidence to sow the seed of the gospel freely to all without discrimination, right? Knowing that a response is not dependent upon us, but it's dependent upon God's sovereign free grace. Now, later in this chapter, Jesus is going to relay a really confusing, cryptic, short parable about a scribe who's been trained for the kingdom. That's what we see in like uh, verse, around verse 51. And, and this scribe who's been trained, this teacher who's been, scra- been trained for the kingdom, he brings out everything that he has in his house, the old treasures and new treasures, and lays them out. And by taking them out, this, this, uh, this teacher would be trained for the kingdom. And what, what, what Jesus is relaying with this, with this parable is this, that we must be teachers trained for the kingdom, taking out all we know, old things and new things, all we know about Christ and his coming kingdom, and tell others and teach others, relaying the secrets of the kingdom to others, sowing the seed indiscriminately. What better season could there for, do, for doing that than, could there be than right now, Right? So many are asking questions that they've never asked before. So many are are being confronted with death in a way that we've never been confronted before. So many are are feeling a need for a Messiah in ways that we never have before. So Jesus gives us uh, parables as an act of free grace. But the crowds, however, the other three groups of people, they had not been given the knowledge of the kingdom. And so, secondly, his parables veil truth from those whose hearts are calloused to receive his message. And this is an important thing to, be, to remember about parables, right? We often think of parables as a sign of Jesus' ingenious teaching skills, right? Like he's Robin Williams and, and Dead Poet Society. And, and parables are relatable, engaging, memorable ways that Jesus chose to communicate deep truths. But that's not who Jesus is. And that's not what Jesus tells us is the purpose of parables, at least not in, in Matthew 13. Here we see that parables veil the truth from those who are unable to truly understand, who are truly able to hear. They are intentionally cryptic. In verses 14 and 15 of Matthew 13, he hammers this point home by referring to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 10 through 11. That's the, where the quotation uh, here is from. And in Isaiah 6, we have, this is, this is uh, if you remember, the beginning of Isaiah's ministry as a prophet. And God sends Isaiah out as a messenger for God to his chosen people, the nations of Israel and Judah. And these two nations, they had been for generations heading down a road of self-destruction, a road of hate and greed and false worship. But Isaiah is not given the message that he wants to take, right? God did not use Isaiah to save them from their self-destruction. God knew that their hearts had become dull and too dull and too calloused to really understand Isaiah's words. So God gave a message that gave Isaiah a message that he knew Israel would not be able to accept. They could hear it, but not understand, right? They could see but not take any action. They, they knew theoretically that they were supposed to pump the brakes at this icy intersection, but they kept mashing down the brake pedal instead. That's because they didn't really understand. And God did this in order that they might not see, uh, in order that they do not see, hear, or understand, and then turn and be healed. 
That's what we see at verse 10 of Isaiah 6 and verse 15 of Matthew 13. Now to us, that sounds kind of unfair, unloving, right? Shouldn't God be eager to heal them and then and so give Isaiah a message that they would be most likely to respond to? The answer to that, unfortunately and tragically, is no. And to help us understand this difficult answer, I think we need, we need to remember two things. And the first thing is that we need to remember that God here is not causing these people to sin, right? He does not plan in advance to make his people sin or reject him. Instead, as D.A. Carson points out, that God is confirming them in their repeated rejection and freely chosen decision to reject him. God is just and he is patient. But in order to preserve his justice and his mercy, God allows people who have repeatedly rejected him to experience the consequences for their sin. If we prove that we are so addicted to ourselves and to our own ways, he will allow us to feel the weight of our sin addiction. And I think uh, for those of us, and I speak for, from experience here, for, for those of us who have experienced the kind of the some earthly consequences for our sin maybe for example a broken relationship or uh, or the a tremendous amount of guilt or shame due to our sin or, or 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 some other earthly consequence for those of us who have experienced that we over time given time we recognize that those consequences are firstly rightly deserved uh, and and then secondly that they are uh, an act of grace and mercy in and of themselves uh, for it is not cruel for, for God or abusive for God to do this, right? Because he is ultimately working toward a greater good in his people's lives. And that's the second thing that we need to remember uh, when wrestling with God's judgment here. If we, if we continue on in Isaiah 6, we, we see how this all plays out. I, Isaiah asks in verse 11, How long, O Lord, how long will you allow these people to confirm their rejection of you? And God says, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and, uh, and houses are empty, it, it's going to be burned, it's going to be chopped down like a, like a terebinth or an oak tree whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. It's going, so God says to Isaiah, it's going to be like a tree that I chop down with an axe. But I'm going to leave the stump of the tree. And then in verse 13, it says, its stump is the holy seed. In other words, Jesus, uh, God is going to judge Israel until only a small remnant remains. And that remnant, as we see uh, later on in Isaiah, that remnant will be like the stump of a tree. And out of that tree, I will produce a seed. As we continue in Isaiah, we find that that seed will be a descendant of David, the branch of David, the root of Jesse, who will be God's Messiah. So in, even in this terrible prophecy of judgment, there is a glimmer of hope for a stubbornly sin-addicted people. And when God hands people over to the consequences of their calloused, hardened hearts, He is ultimately working toward a greater good. So this is the context of Isaiah chapter 6 that Jesus has in mind here as he speaks in confusing parables to those who have rejected him and his kingdom. So Jesus uses uh, parables, firstly, as a free gift of grace to those who truly understand, but then secondly, he uses parables to veil the truth from those too calloused to receive it. Uh, but then in, in verse 18, Jesus moves on, and, and he says, 
therefore, or if you're, if you're, if you're following along, he says, therefore, or so then, listen to this, this parable. And, and, and keep in mind, this is still a private conversation. This is still went in answering the question that the disciples had come and pulled them aside. So it's just between he, he and his disciples. And, and then we, and we have to ask, what's the therefore, therefore, right? Well, it has been given to the disciples to know the secrets of the kingdom. That's what he just got done saying. And now he's about to reveal to them one of the secrets of the kingdom. So he explains it to them, beginning in verse 19. He says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. It has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold. In another case, sixty. And in another, thirty. So Jesus here explains it for us. He says, you know those religious leaders who hate me with everything that's in them? They're like seed that's sown on the path. And you know what's happened to them? The, the devil, these, these uh, spiritual forces of darkness, have come and removed the message of the gospel from them so that they cannot respond. That's weighty. That's deep stuff. And this is, this is the means by which God has handed them over in their, and, and, in their, and con- confirmed their rejection of him. That's the means by which God uh, has used and then he says, those people, you know, who were, who were running with me, right? And then, uh, and then as soon as things got tough, they kind of abandoned us. They're like seeds that sown on rocky ground. And those people who were impressed with me but then got distracted by their own ambitions, they are like seeds sown among thorns. In contrast to all those three, you must be good soil. So, how should we respond? Let us cultivate within ourselves a heart that hears my words, the message about my upside-down kingdom, and truly understands it. That's our third question that we're, that we're asking ourselves, that Jesus helps us answer. Is how should we respond? And I think there's three implications that we can take from Jesus' parable of the sower. And they're also fleshed out in a couple other parables that, we're gonna, that we'll refer to uh, later in, in Matthew 13. Firstly, Jesus' words here are meant to warn us about developing a calloused heart. Only those whose hearts are like good, fertile soil will bear fruit for His kingdom. And if we are going to respond to this text with any kind of integrity, then we have to take an honest inventory of our lives. If someone were to look at your life honestly, what would they see? Would they see a person who really appears to have no desire to follow Jesus at all? That's a scary and a sad place to be, but it's the place many, many people are. Or would they see someone who was at one time excited to follow Jesus, but then as time went on, maybe you encountered a difficult season, 
in your life, or maybe you just begin to feel more acutely the demands that the gospel and that the way of Jesus was placing on your life and your perceived autonomy. And then as time went on, you know, just kind of petered out. You're no longer as excited as you used to be. Or maybe someone looking at your life would, would uh, see a man or a woman who calls himself a follower of Jesus. You go to church, you watch the live stream, you, you pray before your meals. Uh, but if someone were to look closer, they'd see that there are other ambitions in your life that have taken up your primary focus. Which soil are you? Honestly, which, which soil are you? We all, we all know folks that, have, that fall into uh, those last two categories. I mean, even people that I went to Bible school with, people who were at one time excited about serving the Lord and going overseas and serving Him as a missionary or serving in a church somewhere, uh, they were at one time excited. They now no longer identify as Christians. Uh, they no longer uh, f- are following Jesus. What, what separates y- you from the person that you know in your life who's no longer following Jesus. Do whatever it takes to avoid developing a callous heart. But then secondly, in this parable, we are called to uh, produce the fruit of the kingdom. Jesus calls us to identify with Him by shaping our lives around the priorities of His kingdom. In short, by obeying what he teaches us to do. Uh, Later in this chapter, Jesus is going to use two more kind of quick, short parables to describe the person who who truly understands his message about the kingdom, someone who who really gets it. And in verses 44 through 46, we we read that those who really get it, they they prove that they get it by being like a man who who finds a treasure in a field or, or a merchant who finds an exceedingly valuable pearl, and they sell everything that he has just to get that one thing. My friends, however long this season may last, do not waste what we have been given by chasing after our own comfort, by slipping back into old sinful ruts. Following Jesus is worth giving up everything for. It's worth producing the fruit of the kingdom for, even now during a quarantine. And let me speak specifically to students uh, at this point, right? Your school's canceled, uh, but you have an awesome opportunity to cultivate within yourself a heart that is responsive and soft to God's word, a heart made of good soil. On the other hand, you could also waste this season and, and dull and callous your heart to the things of God with video games or by, by giving all your attention to your phone or by, by doing this, by, by failing to obey your parents, right? by ignoring the things that they ask you to do, like your homework, uh, and by protesting when they ask you to do something that you don't really feel like doing. Right? The, the patterns that you, of behavior that you're setting for yourself right now are cultivating your heart, whether, whether you know it or not. They're either cultivating your heart toward softening toward God's Word or hardening towards God's Word, towards God's word and, 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 and a confirming of your own decisions, right? And these patterns that you set now, even in this season, will be the patterns that you continue in after you leave the umbrella of your parents' home. But there's also a reason, I think, here for us all to take encouragement. Maybe this forced isolation, maybe it's paved the way for some old sin patterns to pop up in your life again. 
Maybe parents, maybe you are struggling. Maybe, maybe the struggle to get your kids to, to do their schoolwork uh, at home has produced a lot more arguments or produced a lot more strife and bickering and frustration than it has produced the fruit of Jesus' kingdom. If that's you, if, if you're weary or if your heart is exhausted or if you're beaten down by your own sin, know this, uh, that, that Jesus tells us that the, the soil that produces 30-fold is counted as good soil and bears fruit for the kingdom just as much as the soil that, that produces 60 or 100-fold. Did you notice that? So if you feel like you're barely producing fruit during this season, Jesus' words to you are, keep at it. Keep going. Keep cultivating a heart that's soft to my words, that, that's, that humbly repents and that confesses sin. And, and be comforted. The seed of the word about the kingdom of Jesus is bearing fruit in your life, even if it's doing so slowly. So, avoid developing a calloused heart, produce the fruit of the kingdom, and then thirdly, look to the only one who truly got it. Look to the only one who truly understood the kingdom. As I meditated on, on this word this week, God showed me countless ways that I am, at the core of who I am, still made up of poor soil. I cannot love others as I ought. The, the constant default posture of my heart is to, to prop myself up and, and look out for my own needs. I, I am forever distracted by my own earthly ambitions. I am a sinner at root. And we are all sinners at root. Really, Jesus is the only one who ever truly understood the full weight and significance of his message. He's the only one who, who received his father's command with, with joy and then endured to the end facing the ultimate persecution. He is the only one who was never distracted by the cares of this world or the deceitfulness of riches uh, like we often are. In fact, um, uh, on that very first Palm Sunday, uh, in, as recorded in the Gospel of John, Jesus referred to himself. He would he, these 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 crowds of Gentiles came to him, and he and he taught them. And he referred to himself not not as uh, the farmer who who sowed the seed, but he actually referred to him as the seed itself, the true seed that was planted and buried in the dirt. This is what we see in John chapter twelve, verses twenty three through twenty four. Jesus describes himself in this way. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Remember, this is Palm Sunday. So a week, a week away, he's going to be glorified. Um, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus' true gut-level understanding of his kingdom led him to his death. From the very beginning, he was marching down a road to the cross. But because he died, because he was like a, a grain of wheat buried in the dirt, planted, sowed in soil, he has brought us new life. And now by looking to him, by, by trusting in, in him, by, by fully identifying with his kingdom, by, by allowing our, what we hear to seep down into the core of who we are, we can live as he did and bear much fruit. So let me, let me 
as we close, let me let me pray for us. Is there is there any other way we want to in this in this time? We'll sing a song, okay? Let me let me pray for us, and then we'll we'll sing another song. So, Father, um, we we praise you um, because you are uh, you are the the Messiah, the King of Kings, who became uh, who became one of us for our sake. So, Lord, I pray that uh, you would grant us, by your free grace, uh, ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that truly understand, that truly get it. Would you comfort us where we need to be comforted with this truth? Would you, would you convict us where we've allowed our hearts to grow callous? And then would you challenge and inspire us all uh, to, to serve you, to bear fruit for your kingdom, even during this season? We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.